Okay, good morning again. Please turn, if you have a Bible, to the book of 1 Peter. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Holy Father, I covet. the help, the work of Your Holy Spirit to focus my mind and my thoughts on what is written. To help me unfold not what's not there, but what is there delivered by Your Spirit through the Apostle Peter. And I covet on behalf of all of us the work of Your Spirit upon our hearts to have ears to hear what you are saying to the church. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, what will be made clear in this text is that to be called to Christ, to be called to salvation in Christ is to be called to really, genuinely, fervently, unhypocritically, from the heart, love other believers. Love those in the body of Christ, and especially in the local church. In this paragraph that we have just read and we will look at, there is only one simple main point, main thing said that we are to do. And it's right there, the end of verse 22. Here it is. And kids, if your parents ask you what was the message about, write it down because this is it. Quote, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, if we take the Word of God seriously, I mean, this is what I feel. (laughs) That's almost unbelievable. I'm supposed... 
to do that the way it says? But, but notice now, that's it. That's, that's, the only, that's the main thing said. That's it in this whole text. But notice Peter does not just leave it there hanging in midair. But he roots that command to believers. He roots it in two arguments. And what he is saying to us this morning, that the ability from one degree or another to obey the command It's rooted in the Word of God. Because in the larger context, as you have been here, as we've been working our way through 1 Peter, what has become clear is this. In the larger context, the ability to love is rooted in hope in God. Vertically. Hope in the good news of the grace of God. Laid up for you in heaven. But Joey just says the Word of God. Right. And that's how they're connected. We need real Holy Spirit ongoing hope. That is future aspect of faith. Trust. Walk with Christ. We need that desperately in order to love. And that's why He roots it in the Word. Because that hope is that which comes from the Bible. God speaking, it foments hope, which is the power to love other people. Remember the first chapter so far, 12 verses, he said nothing about what we're to do. He laid out about what God has done for us as believers in the cross of Jesus Christ. He said, look at it. Then in verse 13, what's the first command? Hope in that word. Hope in that word. Fully. And now, love one another. How? From the spring of hope, which the Word births. What the Apostle Peter is expressing in this text this morning is at the core of the Christian life. In the same way that Jesus Himself expressed it in Mark chapter 12 verses 30 to 31 when He said, The first and the great command is, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Why? Because those two commandments are inseparable, they're distinct. The first is vertical. You're not looking out here. Are you hungry? Let me feed you. Yet. You're looking vertically. Love the Lord God with all your heart. 
The second is horizontal. The second, the horizontal, biblically, is dependent on the first commandment, to love God. And there's a nuance in the word love right there, the way Jesus expressed it. He does not mean love your neighbor and thus love God the same way. In other words, when He says love your neighbor as you would love yourself, He means if you're cold, give them a coat. He means if they're hungry, feed them. When He says love God, He doesn't mean if God's hungry or needy, meet His need. He means love God like you love air. You don't work for air. You don't help oxygen out. You love air as the source of life. He says love God as the source of true happiness. Life. That's the vertical. And out of that flows Now you love people. Not like that. Not like air. If you love them like air, you kill them. That's actually the opposite of loving them. That's abusing them and misusing them. He means meet their need. The horizontal flows out of the vertical. That's what we're called to do. Now, here's the big problem with that. You can't do this text. You, I mean, we can do some acts, but we can't do this text. Love from the heart, sincerely, unhypocritically, if you don't have that which to love with or to give. You can't feed a person a peanut butter and jelly sandwich if you don't have one or the means to make it. Or if you watch the telethon the other night and if you can give 10 give 10 you can get 20 give 20 i tried i sent an email out in this church there's 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 lots of organizations in haiti and i would prefer christian ones who who are doing a work so i sent you one but but if i wanted to give a million dollars to help the haitians i can't i don't i don't have it Okay, but now when it's t- we're not talking about money and peanut butter sandwiches at the moment. We're talking about a heart. And here's the problem. We are all born into sin. Which means God created us in His image. And there's something about the core of the human soul that is to be utterly dependent. That, that, that finds its own true, genuine, Real satisfaction and happiness in God alone, period. Everything else is only the reflection of His glory. And being born in sin means we're dead to the ability to see that reality. And so we substitute that yearning inside of our hearts with everything else. That's how we're born into this world. And that means this, connected to love. 
we are constantly yearning to get that God-shaped vacuum satisfied and filled with alcohol, with drugs, with relationship, with more toys. If I only had the right spouse, that would, that would be it. If I only had more money, if I only had the, a better house, that would be the answer to my happiness. And that causes us, by our very nature, to use the world and to seek to use other human beings as the means to meet our goal of happiness, which is the opposite of biblically loving them as ends. That's why Jesus said, when you love people, He says, you want to make it easier, do it this way. Go invite those over who don't have any money so they can't pay you back. What He is saying there is not that you can't love a rich person. He's talking about when you do something for someone and you got strings attached, you ain't loving them at all. You have utterly destroyed your reward in heaven. You have used them as a means to pride or tit for tat. No, I guess I got to be invited over to their house next. And you get angry when they don't do it. All that showed was you didn't invite them over for dinner out of a heart of love. It was a contract in your mind, a transaction like we do down at the grocery store. And you don't give money to the grocery store out of love. It's a business transaction. And therefore, to be able to love truly other human beings as ends, just, that's it. it just ends there. We have to be, and I want to use the English real, I'm going to butcher the English on purpose. We have to be those who have got and are being or getting our God-shaped vacuum filled so that we have fullness here now to overflow to the other. Now, we go very slowly. I want to read something from the Apostle Paul. And see if you don't see that what I have just said there is very clearly in the New Testament the essence of loving other people. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's writing to the church that is in the city of Corinth. And what Paul has been doing for a couple years and revisiting all these church plants and all these cities, is he has been collecting money, a lot of it, because of other believers, Jewish believers in Judea, who were hit horribly with famine. And they're extremely financially needy to feed themselves. And he has been pleading on behalf of these brothers and sisters on these other cities and churches where they're not as struck. Love them by meeting their need. And so, this is what he's doing. And so, he picks up in chapter 8, and now he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's saying, this is his whole point in the context, give as much as you can. But watch how he tries to persuade them. Pick up with verse 1, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians. He says, We want you to know, brothers, 
about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, here he is. Here's the church of Philippi and the other cities in Macedonia. He's going to use them as an example. Be like them. Watch what he does. Of the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. That's the source. Now watch him. Their abundance of joy mixed with their extreme poverty financially. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of their generosity on their part. What do you mean, Paul? He goes on. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Oh, now listen to Paul. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we had expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. There's the vertical. And then by the will of God to us. Okay, see how he's arguing. Paul says, look, this is how the Christian love works. If you're not walking with God, if you're not walking with the Word of God, if the Word of God, even no matter if you're being afflicted like the Macedonians, and you don't have a lot of surplus, you're not financially wealthy, but you are so overcome with joy in the Gospel, that when you find out there's an opportunity to love your brothers and sisters way over there in Judea by giving out of your poverty, he says, from joy they begged us, let us give you money for them. It flows out of that joy. Now, why do I say and that is the essence of love? Because look at verse 8. Paul says, I lay this hole illustration with the Macedonians out to you Corinthians. He says, why? I say this not as a command, but as to, or, but to prove by the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. And th- this is where Paul's going to go on to say, God loves a cheerful giver out of joy. Paul's idea, thus the Holy Spirit's idea, is you could give your life or a sandwich or 400 bucks. And it's not love, biblically. It's not flowing out of that heart of joy in God through Christ. And now, so, Back to our text. Peter, let's read it. He's saying essentially the same thing in verses 22 to 25. So remember, the main clause, what he commands us to do in verse 22 is clear. He says, quote, earnestly, or meaning fervently, on fire, fire, 
love one another. Now watch. From the heart, or pure heart. For him, it's not just actions. But something, according to Peter, is supposed to be going on on the inside that motivates the practical, loving actions. It's not just feelings. And it's not fake feelings. The beginning of verse 22, he talks about how the Word of God is producing sincere, or another way to say what he means is unhypocritical love. Do you feel this? I I feel the weight of that. Not merely as a pastor. I'm a Christian. I'm down here. I'm alive. I haven't died yet. Fighting the fight of faith. And I hear that. And it becomes overwhelming to me. And I know it is to you. Unless right now you're hardened and you're dark. Because every single one of us is being attacked daily by selfish desires. So so what do we do? How are we to deal with this command and see it at least there? Is it there somewhere? Is it growing? Is there a seed? Is there a plant that shows that maybe I'm real, maybe I'm a real Christian, Maybe I really do love Christ. I see expressions of it. So what do we do? Oh, I'm not... I, I, I don't know where else to go. I, I, I'm not, I can't go to pop psychology. I can't go to ten little steps or tricks to get, to get you or to get me to maybe do a little bit better this week in serving the needs of other people. I, I don't... I don't know what the answer to that would be. And, and I don't need to. Because the Apostle Peter in this text tells us the source. He tells us the daily source on how. You can see it. It's picking up in verse 22. The way he does it around this one command. Earnestly love one another. Fervently, from a pure heart, he gives two supporting arguments. So as I read slowly, just see if you can notice them as we read. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and the abiding Word of God. Peter has explicitly said the source for genuine, earnest, heartfelt, Love, 
expression itself in actions comes from the source of the Word of God. Of the truth. The truth by which the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, the truth by which the Holy Spirit caused you to be born again and is producing ongoingly hope and faith by the cleansing of that very Word. Christian love in this text is not just vague feelings and nor is it mere social action. It's feelings and it is actions. This love is that which springs out of what Peter just said here. These two supports. One comes before the command, the other comes after the command. In verse 22, the one that comes before, he says, here's your source. Quote, because you have been, or because you have purified, I mean, that's a perfect tense verb in the Greek, which means it's a past action with ongoing ramifications up to the present and going on. Because you purified and are purifying your souls by your obedience to the truth. And then, secondly, in verse 23, what's the second ground? Because you have been born again by the Word of God. It's clear. If there's going to be any true or genuine ongoing love in the life of a Christian, then, according to this text, these two things have to be our experience. You have to be a person who's been born again by the Word, and our hearts have to be hearts that are in the process of being purified by our obedient response to the Word, to the truth. The power to love comes through the Word of God. Let's, let's look very closely then at the second argument, starting with verse 23. First the command, He tells us, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, that is, through the living and the abiding Word of God. So, we can act out in this kind of love only because something has been worked upon us. That's the first thing that becomes clear. The beginning of verse 23 where he says, since, or your translation appropriately would say something like, for, or meaning because, because verse 23 is the reason we can obey the command to love one another. In other words, the reason is what? Because you have been born again. Stop there. He didn't say because you caused yourself to be born again. He didn't didn't say that. 
It's a passive voice. I know, language. Come on, you got homeschool teachers, you should know this. Passive voice means we, the subject of that verb, born again, are passive in it, meaning someone else did that action to us, which is God. And this is exactly what he made clear earlier in the chapter in verse 3. If you remember, when he says, God the Father is the one who caused us to be born again. Secondly, it says God did this through a means. I go into my backyard. And Jode cuts down the tree. Let's say you show up and the tree's down. And look at what happened there. The tree, did it, did it cut itself down? No. I did it. Okay? The tree was passive. I'm an outside agent. I did that to the tree. How did you do it, Joe? Oh, I used this axe. Now, now, the axe by itself didn't do it. I cut the tree down by or with the axe. That's the structure of this text. He says, you can love if this is you because you've been cut down or, change the verb, born again, by, not Joe, but by God, with, not the axe, but with the Word of God. The living and the abiding Word of God is the means through which God causes sinful, wrath-deserving human beings to be born again. And this is exactly the way the Apostle Paul describes how this happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he writes, starting with verse 22, For Jews, they demand signs, and Greeks, they seek for wisdom. But we come with an axe. That's what he's saying. We come with an axe. We're trees who are desperate to be cut down by God. And Paul's going to say, God won't do it without the axe. And so Paul says, we go and we bring an axe. And the Jews, they want signs. The Greeks, they seek for wisdom. But we, and here's the axe, preach Christ crucified. What's the result? It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to the non-Jews. And so no one will believe and be saved. Unless what he says next happens. God Himself wields the Word while Paul's preaching it. He says, but to those who are called from among Jews and Greeks, to them Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so yes, why is Christ personally, intimately, the power of God to some and not to others? 
The biblical answer is because with the preaching, God acted on those some by causing them to be born again. Or the way Paul put it here, called them. But don't miss the point right there in 1 Corinthians either. He did it through the acts of the Word of God. The preaching of the cross. The preaching of the Word. He, while the Word's being preached, and if you love Christ, if you believe that there is no salvation outside of Christ, if you believe that He is this One who came in the womb of Mary, who was uncreated, the eternal God become truly human in order to take the wrath of God that you or I deserved and was slaughtered on a cross, killed, and three days later, really, historically, physically, resurrected from the dead as a human being forever. If you believe there is no salvation outside of that, it's because in the hearing of that Gospel, God caused you to recognize it and to love it. To see it as the treasure in the field. That is, in other words, what Peter's saying here is the Holy Spirit moves miraculously upon hearts in the unadulterated preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's foundational to the love that he's talking about, that we are to do one to another. Foundational, but, here's the kicker, Peter's main emphasis here is not the new birth. His main emphasis in the text is the Acts. It's the ongoing use of the Acts. It's the Word of God through which this happens. He doesn't just emphasize the new life through the Word, but He emphasizes something about the Word itself. Quote, Not of perishable seed. He's using metaphor here with plant life now. Not of perishable seed grows, but of imperishable through the living and ongoing, enduring, abiding Word of God. Now, Peter in the first chapter, he loves this word imperishable. He's already talked about the imperishable inheritance, your imperishable faith. He's talked about the imperishable ransom blood of Christ and now the imperishable Word. Why does he do this for us believers? Because he's telling us in the face of this command to love not not merely just do, love and do from a heart. And he knows our battle. He's saying the Word of God is your source and the Word of God is imperishable. He's saying if you stand on the Word, this is the only thing in truth in all of this world that will last. 
it will stand as long as the one who spoke it stands. So if God ceases to be, well, then it will fail. But the Word of God will not cease to be. It is the only endurable substance upon which you'll live forever. What we are desperate for is a constant, ongoing, living, communion, relationship, however you want to put that, in your personal life with God. That is, in other words, to be filled with hope. Biblical hope, which comes through the living and enduring Word of God. That's why this book, the Bible, is our life. Now, so, not this. Well, I'm a Christian. I guess I'm supposed to read my Bible. No, you're not. You've missed it. You've missed it. When you wake up that way and you feel that way, look in the mirror. I do this to myself all the time. Point the finger and say, you hard-hearted, you're so desperate and you don't even know it. No. You and I, we are desperate for communion with God. We're desperate to taste and see, as he's going to say, we'll see in next week's text, constantly of the Word of God and how good He is to us. Our hearts are so small. We love green grass and flowers of the world so much. We're going to see in a second. We have to smell not the roses, but the sweetness of Christ revealed in the Word and the Word hidden in our heart on a constant daily basis. If this has been so alive to you four and a half years ago, that won't suffice for this week. This is Peter's point about the ongoing and living and abiding Word of God. It's why He calls it living. And now just read on verse 24 because He's not done. He says now about the Word, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. So again, His emphasis is the permanence, the steadfastness, the the imperishableness of the Word of God. Now here's the thing. What he's doing here, he's quoting from Isaiah the prophet from chapter 40. And his main point to draw from Isaiah is verse 8 in Isaiah 40. Or verse 25 in our text. But the word of the Lord endures forever. That's his main point, isn't it? And you think, why didn't he just say that? He decided to include the two verses that come before it in Isaiah. So you've got to ask, why does he do that? He could have made his point without doing that. So I've got to think, 
there's a reason. And just put it all together where we're at so far. You ought to feel overwhelmed. I do. As every week goes by, I do. Once in a while, I see signs of genuine love. Okay, gosh, help my heart. They're reflecting my heart. They're reflecting a lack of hope, a lack of trust, a lack of dependence. But he says, love from a pure heart. And the word of the Lord, yes, it's it. But then he quotes verses 6 and 7 about the flesh being like grass. and It's all going to perish. I think because of this. The grass, the flower, and the glory of it. We're tempted by it all the time. And it is what kills our loving other people. Notice, he says, all flesh is as grass. What do you mean? He means every human being is mortal. We're all dying. Whether it's my one-year-old Caleb or my wife's grandmother who's 95 they're both as surely as dead as the other there is no out we're all grass and everything we value in creation is grass and he goes on And all of its glory, splendor, is like the flower of grass. Everything in the world, and I mean the world, can to our eyes glitter. My wife, she's part of the world. I, I am still blown away that God would show such grace upon me. To have such a wife. I, mean, I was at a funeral slash reunion yesterday, and I said, to my, "It's amazing. All my guys I grew up and played with, their their lives are almost destroyed, and they've had wives and they don't anymore, and life's painful. I'm, it's just pure grace." And Peter, or Isaiah, and now thus Peter interprets it by saying. Yeah, the grass grows and it's beautiful and there's glorious springs on it or flowers and all the glitter. But the grass withers and the flower falls. Now, Peter, nor Isaiah, and thus nor God, they are not saying that there's no external glory or external beauty. He's affirming it. In all of what the world offers, whichever cultures we come from, the arts, in literature, music, it can be very glorious. Glitter and flower. Movies, well-made or mind-boggling works of art. Go watch the 3D pagan movie Avatar. 
It's done so well. Just teach your kids about paganism. It's a good lesson. He's not denying it. He's not denying that our sports... Okay, I, there's TiVo out there. I can't wait to see the two games today. And who's going to be in the Super Bowl? I went to a funeral because a lot of my life was revolved around sports of El Segundo baseball yesterday. And it brings a lot. And okay, what do you do? How do we handle things like that? It, it does glitter, but the reality is this, and funerals show this too. The grass withers. And the flower of that so-called glory falls to the ground. And dies. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And then, end quote there, and Peter says, Get it. I want, we're supposed to get this. And get what? He hasn't left his main point. Love one another. So get it. The word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the gospel. The good news which was preached to you. And so, Peter quotes all of Isaiah verses 6 to 8, not just 8, in order to illuminate his point in verse 23. You have been born again through the living the abiding Word of God. If this Word is your life, if the Gospel, more than everything, more than your beautiful and who knows how she loves me this long wife or your children or your moms or dads or friends or family or cars or boats or homes, if this Word is your life, then you will live forever. The preaching of the Word is our hope. That's what he said. Now, let's not forget now the big picture. What we just saw here in verses 23 to 25 is the source. It's the cause of our love for one another. As he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since or because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and the abiding Word of God. So what he is saying is that if you have not been born again by the Word, and you are not abiding in the Word, then to that extent, you cannot be truly loving. Because biblical love flows from the fullness of Christ. And thus, when it flows out from that, it acts, it gives money or time or a ride, or it inconveniences itself because it sees that need and it meets that need without expecting anything in return from that person. Because its vacuum is filled 
with God in the living, abiding Word. See, without our constant work in pursuing, getting our heart, soul, that God-shaped vacuum filled, or the way Paul puts it, being filled with the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Without that, we will constantly act out of emptiness in order to try to be satisfied through her, him, it. More money, better toys. I'll use that person. To the extent biblical love is working, you can't sell people insurance that you know they don't need. Oh no, it's just it's the way capitalism works. It is the way it works, but it doesn't mean you're called to lie to people for your own ends. Oh, we can go into every job profession. We can go into the trades and everything else. Sell them something they don't really need. You don't do that. It's not love. Well, how are you going to do that? There's only one way, being filled with God through the Word, communion, all through Jesus Christ. Here's the real problem, every one of us. We all, this week, will experience from one degree to another, Sin. We will experience refusing to love. And there's something underneath it that pushes us there. And at the core, it's pride, or say it this way, it's fear. All of this you can say underneath pride, under fear, is it's called this, unbelief in God's Word. Unbelief in His promises. It's pride or fear. For instance, fear of if, if I gave that much money, how... Fear of what we would lose. I know that they're lonely in a hospital, but I only got so much time. I, uh, fear of... Time is precious and it's valuable. Uh, fear of... but But... But I like that person at church. I don't understand that kind of person over here, so I just avoid them. Fear of not getting your need met, of being happy in a conversation when that person just needs your... your. We're constantly selfish because of our sin and the fear of what we will lose. I mean, just think about it. I'll, just, I'll use me. Why does it take me when, once in a while, I'm wrong... If, <laughs> so if you're listening to this on MP3, I looked at my wife and we all knew it was a joke. All right. And when when I sin against her, snap and angry, and then I know I'm wrong. Why does it take two hours or two days? Say I'm sorry. I was wrong. Pride, the fear of my right to be right. I don't like to look like I'm wrong, and we, we 
What is the hope of the Word? Oh, I think one of the most profoundly loving people, and it's not, not within himself, it was purely the grace of God, and he would testify to it. His name was Paul, the Apostle. Paul, what are you going to do for the next 40 years if he could see the future? And he kind of did see the future because in a very, because he was an Apostle, a unique position historically. Jesus said to him, in a type of way that he's never spoken to any of you, nor me. Appeared to him. And he told him how much he will have to suffer for the name of Jesus. Okay, so Paul, he gets on a road and makes decisions about loving others. And if the gospel is true, there is no greater love than to see people getting ready to plunge into just condemnation forever and withholding from them the only means that could save them from it, the message of the Gospel. But to do that, that would mean shipwreck numbers of times, a night and a day in the deep. That would mean being whipped 39 times by authorities on his back. It would mean being imprisoned. And just listen to his litany of what love costs him. How could you do that, Paul? How could you make decisions to lose the Word of God? He made it clear that's what drove him. And he made it crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 15. When he says, If Jesus Christ did not actually and really rise from the dead, He said, Pity us Christians. Because love is very costly down here. That's the essence of Christianity. Why over the last couple centuries have so many brothers and sisters left England or America before the airplane and on ships and went to unreached peoples in Africa and in islands out in the Pacific which for so many of them meant their wives and their kids would be dead probably in five years because of the disease. Why would they go lose? The whole point is, love flowed out of the truth of the Gospel. An other, other, not grassy fields, other worldly hope. Just give me read one text. It's just so clear the way the writer to the Hebrews puts it in chapter 10, verses 32 to 35. He writes to these Christians. And these Christians, a lot like you and me, ups and downs, and they're down. They are not loving each other like they were 15 years ago. And if you guys remember going through the book of Hebrews at this church for two years, the main reason was they becoming hard of heart concerning the Word of God. This is what he writes, quote, But recall, believers, the former days 
when after you were enlightened, you come to faith in Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. What do you mean? Sometimes you are being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. He says, because look, you remember, you had, here's love, compassion on fellow believers who were in prison. You would visit them knowing that while you did, the authorities might destroy your house, take all your stuff. And you said, we're going to love anyway. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully, there it is again, that joy comes. Well, he's going to say where it comes from. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The hope laid up in heaven is the ultimate, ultimate, practical means to true biblical love. One of the stupidest statements in the history of the church is, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The Bible says the exact opposite. Paul says the exact opposite. Peter is saying the exact opposite. The writer to the Hebrews is saying the exact opposite. Your problem of those people who are no earthly good is that they're not actually heavenly minded. They're not living their life in the Word, overwhelmed at the truth of it, and what it calls them to be down here because of what it calls them to forever, metaphorically, up there. Abundant grace, we in this text are called to constantly act out with our time, with giving an ear, with our money, with our differing gifts that God has given us, with our prayers, and all of that from a heart in loving one another. That is, to do for the other person what you would want done for you if that were you in their situation. And the key to living this way in the church world and and in life and in the world as a whole is the key to, to, to acting that way and to joyfully get plundered. Joyfully have your time plundered, your money plundered, your your gifts plundered. To joyfully lose the cherished values of the world is by constantly going to the source of love, which is the Word of God, which penetrates the innermost being and produces in us a satisfaction in God that can now overflow this day in meeting the need of someone else. That's what He's calling us to. And that is exactly 
what Peter says to abundant grace at the beginning of our text when he tells us abundant grace having and going onwardly purifying your souls for a sincere unhypocritical love for your brothers a brotherly love sisterly love in Christ love one another earnestly fervently passionately from a pure Let us, therefore, because of this command, first and foremost, daily, wake up desperate. Desperate for communion with God. Feel it. Be honest with it. Say, God, again today, please work through my selfishness. As I get before Your holy, precious Word, cry out, God, make me more of a self-sacrificial person for the glory of Christ from a joyful heart that springs from the truth of the grace laid up for me. Let's pray. Father, I pray on behalf of everyone who is presently a believer, and those who may not be, your word has gone forth, chop the tree down. And I pray simply, therefore, for all of us now, help us earnestly be desperate to devour the Gospel, Your Word, prayerfully, so that by Your Spirit, You would cause us to be less selfish and tangibly more loving throughout this week, month, and the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name. If you can, would you please stand with me?